Welcome to Simply Christian, a podcast diving deep into the essentials of the Christian faith, heresies, and everything in between. I'm Isaac. And I'm John. Man. We made it. We made it. Wow. It's it's here. This is awesome. This has been such an awesome season. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing what God, whatever God has next, um, but getting through one season is amazing. It's been a blessing doing this with you too, bro. This is, this is really great. Man, yes it is. It, it's been awesome. It's been awesome. Yeah. So today's agenda. We have a series of questions that we've gotten from our listeners. Bunch of questions from you guys. Oh yeah. And what we're going to do is we are going to kind of have like a lightning round and try to knock out as many of these as possible while giving fairly good answers. Mm-hmm. Every one of these could deserve their own episode, but uh, we're going to do what we can <laughs> here. And maybe in season two, we'll circle back and talk about some of these in detail. But um, yeah. yeah, anything else you want to say before Only we jump thing, in? Just keep, keep, keep the questions coming as you guys are listening to the episodes. If you have questions on the episodes or even just other ones, we are so happy to hear from you guys. And it's just been a blessing to be able to get some questions from you. Um, it's a joy just to know that people are out there listening and uh, jotting things down. So praise God for you guys. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And one last disclaimer. Um, we have 12 questions and we may not get through all of them, <laughs> but this might turn into a part two yeah. um, of a grand finale. So this might be the semi grand finale and, <laughs> but we'll see. Cool. All right. So first question for you, John, mm. what is biblical modesty? Biblical modesty. Wow. So this question I think is a really good one. Very, um, uh, practical for everybody, and I just want to look at one passage just to start. Um, the Bible does lay out modesty as um, a factor for Christians to be thinking through when it comes to their dress, how they present themselves to the world. So this says, First uh, Timothy chapter two verse nine. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly. And then he goes on to talk about braided hair, gold, pearls, costly garments as an example of these things that um, I believe in Paul's day was particularly immodest in this day. Um, People were dressing um, high-mindedly, kind of showing off, going to church as if it maybe were a fashion show to kind of demonstrate their wealth. Um, And so we don't get a big layout, I believe, in Scripture of precisely what modest, modesty looks like. We don't have a, a clear, exact line when we can always say, um, this has, with this level of clothing on that goes to your elbow, that's fine, but anything tighter than the elbow is now crossed over <laughs> into the line right, of right. immodest or you know, this much of your neck or this much of your leg, we don't get clear, specific things like that. But I think what we can do is trust just language and Paul's meaning of things when he says modesty, his um, absence of fleshing that out exactly what that looks like. I think we can take weight in that and say, we can use our common sense. We can use our sanctified common sense as Christians. We can use biblical counsel, wisdom around us from fellow believers, and determine what modesty is in our culture, in our day to day. And you go, you, you know, something that is considered very, very modest in our culture, you know, um, if we were to go to the Middle East, would be deemed immodest by that culture. And I yeah. think that in that culture, we would want to make an adaptation to that culture to say, all right, I'm in a different culture. And while this is modest in my culture, it's immodest here. And so I'm going to adapt myself to be modest 
in this context, in this culture. And so while Paul doesn't exactly flesh it out, I think some principles that we can get are something that won't make somebody else stumble. You know, you hear this all the time. You know, you don't want to make your brother or sister stumble based on your clothing. I think it, it sounds played out and worn out, but I think it holds very, very true. Um, we I've wanna... seen people argue against that. Like, it's not my fault. Uh-huh. It's not my fault if, uh, you know, if someone else stumbles over you know, yes. whatever clothing. Yeah. And it's like, well, actually, yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. In a way, you know, it's yep. like, yeah, I get the whole rapist argument and like, there's a, that's a whole nother thing. But uh-huh. like, there's, yes. there's like in the Bible, like if, if drinking makes a brother stumble or eating meat sacrificed to idols makes a brother stumble, mm-hmm. even though the things might not be inherently wrong, right. it is wrong if I know it's making them stumble and I right. choose to do it around them. Yes. Yep. Yep. And there are certain things. And even as a man, you know, like I, there, it's, I think it goes, it cuts both ways equally, you know, and it needs to be distributed, distributed equally. But as a man, I, I want to think, all right, who am I, who, what am I trying to do wearing this particular outfit, you know? And, um, and mm. is, how That's can good. I uphold my, my fellow believers? Yeah. Um, yeah, and, it goes for guys too. And how I'm dressing. Sure does. And so um, I think that's one principle is that we want to guard, help, try to help safeguard the minds of our brothers and sisters. And ultimately, if they were to act on those, they're in sin as well. So it's not all our responsibility. But nonetheless, I think I can help my brothers and sisters out um, in dressing modestly. But also, I think another principle that we can get to is um, the the high-mindedness, uh, you know, showiness, you know, I, I could be dressed mm. very modestly yeah. in, um, I'm not causing somebody else to be tempted based on them seeing various, you know, parts of my body or whatever it is. Not that people probably are seeing me that way anyways, <laughs> but nonetheless, I'm just trying to use myself as an example. I'm feeling weird even saying all this, but, but, um, I think that is one way I can be immodest, but another way too would be if I'm just like, if I'm dressed modestly, but they're like, wow, John's like, He's just going all out with the gold jewelry or, you know, yeah. the stuff. And, like, he's just decked out to the nines, you know, um, $15,000 shoes. You know, I think there is something to be said about that yeah, as, well, as well. That's that's immodest be That would yeah. be, like, me being immodest and I'm kind of going yeah. in and I'm presenting myself as, like, a, you know, <laughs> royalty or something. You know, I think right. that's a, another principle that we can get from this with, with regard to modesty. Yeah. Um, and while there aren't clear delineations and say, this is exactly when you cross the line, I think in the context of a local church, um, that the godly counsel of the people around them, we can kind of help discern what the spirit would be indicating as something that is immodest and yep. we can approach somebody. So yeah, yeah, that's good. Quick cool. answer. Yep. Um, yeah. and hopefully that is helpful. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for whoever asked that question. We won't call people out by names, but God bless you. Um, second question, I'm going to give this to you, bro. Um, how can you submit to people who have harmed you? This is a deep question. I think it has a lot of emotion and probably pain even behind this, but like an abusive parent or an uh, abusive spouse or somebody who has brought a lot of pain in your life, but yet the Bible seems to say we should honor them because they're either our parent or our spouse or our, our boss at work. How do we navigate that? Yeah, that's really good. So we'd want to define abuse first. So um, so let me say what it's not because I've, I've dealt with this growing up. Um, Let's talk about in the context of parents, because I think this is probably one of the most practical ways, you know, you're supposed to honor your parents, right? Um, But there are parents that abuse children. So at what point do you, 
do you obey what they say if they're harming you? Mm. Or, you know, how do you navigate that? Because that's, that's really tough. Mm. Does it mean you don't obey anything they say because they abuse you? Or does it mean you don't obey the things that lead to them abusing you or, you know, mm-hmm. whatnot? So, but let's, let's say what abuse isn't though, because um, you are, there's physical abuse and there's emotional abuse. And physical abuse thing, that's a little easier to pinpoint. That's, you know, that's pretty obvious. Uh, I don't think just general spanking on the behind <laughs> is is right. abuse necessarily. Yeah, it yeah. could be, I guess, but uh-huh. generally that's not it. But, you know, if someone's like, if one of your parents is hitting you, um, like, aggressively on your face or other parts of your body, whatever, or or sexually, whatever, you know, that's obviously physical abuse. Easy yes. to point out, not cool. Yep. Not cool. Yep. Um, but the emotional abuse part, that's a little harder. Mm-hmm. So what abuse isn't? is it's not your parents having strict rules that they want you to follow in their home. Like, that's not abuse. That's just them parenting and having authority over you, and you need to submit to their rules, unless it goes against a commandment of God. Um, What emotional abuse would be is um, them constantly tearing you down or manipulating you uh, for selfish gain. Mm. Um, It could be... Well, yeah, really those things. Uh, There's probably more you could say about that, but for the sake of time, um, that's, you know, as far as emotional abuse and physical abuse, those are kind of the the categories that want to define. Um, So how do you do that? So let's look at uh, David and King Saul. So Mm. King Saul wanted to kill David. Mm. Saul is David's authority. He's the king. Mm -hmm. How did David deal with that? Well, David didn't say, well, forget you and try to try to kill him. He Mm. didn't kill him. David had the opportunity to do so, right. yeah. and he told Saul that. Mm-hmm. And David honored him, while at the same time did not put himself in the way of danger. Mm-hmm. He avoided the situations where he could be abused by Saul, but still respected him as his authority. Mm-hmm. So there's the kind of mm, both and good. that we gotta we gotta navigate through and. Uh, there's no way we can, in this episode, tell someone in a si- certain situation every you know mm-hmm. the right thing to do. Right. But that's generally it. You know, you find a way to still maintain that honor while putting yourself out of the way of danger. Right. And if you're a child, you know that that might, um, you know, especially if you're really you know younger and you can't really do anything out in the normal world it might end up being telling someone else in your family what's going on and seeing if you can live with them mm-hmm. while still not you know talking trash about your parents yeah you know yeah i don't know that's just uh that's a thought but i think that's that, good yeah, yeah that's really good yep yep um being able to honor them from a distance is possible forgive people from a distance from a safe distance and yeah, a lot of tricky stuff, but that's that's a good answer, bro. Yeah. Yeah, cool. So let me ask you this one. Should believers completely disassociate with fallen Christians such as Ravi Zacharias? For example, should we never refer to their teachings and do you think we should get rid of their books? Mhm. That is a, a great one and a painful one you think about people like Ravi Zacharias and people somebody who was just so beloved to so many people and so beneficial and then after he after he passes so much just stuff gets unearthed and horrible stuff. Um, and so in a lot of ways we mourn over that. Um, Mm -hmm. but I guess in short, I would just, my short answer would be that, no, we don't have to fully 
get rid of all of their books, anything that's been a blessing to us. I think that there is room for uh, him to be somebody like him, and we'll probably just keep using him as an example, but there are others as well, but that we would use, that there is stuff that has been good that has come from him, while ultimately the underlying stuff beneath the surface was horrific. Um I believe that there, you know, might be some things that we can sift through and still keep. I still, I know that there are many even arguments that I use with atheists um, that are arguments that I've kind of gotten from Ravi Zacharias that has been very impactful um, and very, very useful. Now, um, do I think on a public level, though, you know, and I know we're doing a podcast right now, so I am kind of saying this publicly, but on a public level, if I were to be, you know, putting together a presentation or even in my arguments uh, with an atheist, if they're like, you know, um, I, I wouldn't give Ravi's name, you know, um, and I think there are ways to take the truths that he presented um, without actually really um, citing him because I think yeah. what that does is it leads us it leads us down as a it's a bad testimony someone yeah. you know and I've sometimes I just for an example I've used C.S. Lewis in a positive way and I've actually even told the person this is a C.S. Lewis argument the lunatic liar or lord and I said you know uh, you heard of C.S. Lewis I wouldn't say that with Ravi because I wouldn't want them to go and look up Ravi yeah. and be like oh wow you know there's just more reason that you Christians yeah um, I agree so I think we can take things and, and sift through it and I also think you know the conscience and you brought this up before we uh, pressed record but the conscience it could be a thing here too if somebody's conscience is bur- burdened by this um then you know potentially i could see space for a person being like all right all my ravi stuff is is gone and um getting rid of it i don't think that's a necessity um and i just to give a one example of this um in early church history um there was debate over something similar i think it has a lot of crossover people were being baptized by ministers um as we still do today and has always been the practice of the church but um later these ministers who would baptize them fell into heresy now the question is what's up with that was my baptism even valid is there any validity to the baptism that this minister had seeing that he's a heretic what's going on do i need to get rebaptized and as the church counseled and convened what they they determined was no this is a valid baptism it's not our salvation our baptism our merits as a christian the things that we've learned um that how we've been blessed is not dependent upon the sinful or perfect nature of the minister that we um have who gave us these things but it's dependent upon god and so with this i still think ravi said some things that were true and solid and and grounded in the word and um, even logically and philosophically sound but at the end of the day obviously his life was not in accordance with um uh, what we would at all say is a christian life yeah and so um i think there is some discretion there that christians ought to have to not promote him absolutely cool good Um, answer all right. Uh, I think I left maybe the toughest one for you. Is lying ever permissible? Um, you is, can take that one. <laughs> is it ever okay for a Christian? Can we ever justify saying, I, I lied in that situation, but I think God's pleased with it because it maybe did a greater good? You know, what's, is, mm. is it ever permissible? <laughs> yeah, that's good. So, yeah, super good question. So, uh, let me, let me, before I give my answer, let's look at a few examples in the Bible. So uh, if you remember in Exodus, there's the midwives um, in Egypt, and Pharaoh told the midwives to kill all of the newborn baby 
I think it was boys or just all the babies. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe all of them. Yeah. 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 I don't remember. Right. That's yeah. great, but is <laughs> <laughs> one or the other. They, we were told to kill. Um, yeah. yeah. I think it was boys. I'm pretty sure it was boys. Okay. Um, but anyways, they were told to kill the boys, and um, the midwives refused to do so, and they lied. They said that the Hebrew women are so strong, they're just giving birth mm-hmm. before we can even get there. Yep. Yep. And they lied. They were there, and they were helping them give birth. But God was pleased with their answer. Yeah. Um, so how do we deal with that? Because, mm-hmm. like, doesn't God say he hates liars? Yeah. <laughs> like, it says that all yeah. over the place. He hates lying. He hates liars. Um, and, yeah, there's a few other examples of that in the Bible. Well, let's just stick with that one. Um, like, how do we deal with that? Well, I th- I think the a good way of looking at this is... Um, there is a type of deceiving or lying that is okay. It's it's right because it is protecting the life of other people. It's, if you look at the examples in the Bible, like um, that one, and then there's one in Joshua two where uh, I think it's Rahab lies about having Joshua and Caleb in her house when the people are trying to mm-hmm. the people of Jericho are trying to kill them. Uh, she says. Um, they're not here, but they went that, you know, they went somewhere else mm-hmm. and they didn't, they were right there. Mm-hmm. So she lied, but God was pleased with that. It seems. Um, so in all those cases, it's protecting the life of other people. It's protecting the life of the innocent from the guilty, mm-hmm. from those who are trying to harm. So this isn't an excuse to just lie whenever you want to, whenever it's going to be beneficial for you mm-hmm. or beneficial for someone else. It's not like that. It's much more, complicated and specific where it seems like it's okay to lie if you're going to be protecting the life of innocent people mm-hmm. from someone who's trying to harm them. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yep. And most of our listeners, uh, us will, or anybody really will probably never find themselves in a situation. Yeah. Like thankfully. That. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Thankfully. And thankfully. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but this would happen to Christians all up. It still does. Mm-hmm. If you, um, if you go to a country um, that persecutes Christians, and you know, someone asks you, "Hey, do you know any Christians mm-hmm. in this country?" Right. And you're a Christian yourself, and you don't want to give away your brothers. You say no. Mm-hmm. You know, you yeah. can lie. Like, that's okay because you're protecting mm-hmm. the innocent from the guilty, mm-hmm. and God's pleased with that because He doesn't want them to know. Uh-huh. <laughs> you right. know, right. Yeah. so like, yeah, that's yeah. I don't know if that yeah, it's a I'd agree. And I know there's probably so much more like little sub questions that pop up with that. But I think, yeah, yeah. Our, I, I would agree with you. Our general answer is in a very, very limited context, very small set of circumstances. Yeah. That right. It could be okay. And yep. that's not lying in the sinful sense. Mm-hmm. It's it's deceiving, but in a okay way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know, which always sounds weird to it say, but, sound, I, but with the biblical weird. precedent, it seems like that is the yeah. case. Yep. Yep. Yes. So I don't think, I actually think that I had an easy one compared to this next one. <laughs> oh, yeah. So uh, what about free will, John? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I guess the way I would come at this is this, um, and just to set the big picture, and I know mo- most people don't mean this when they're asking this, but uh, I'd say the only person who has really ultimate free will is God. The only one who can actually do everything that he desires to do. He is sovereign. And I would say he's the only one with ultimate free will. Yeah. I can't 
you know, fly. I want, I want to fly, but I can't. Um, but I think most people don't mean that when they're saying I want free will. I think typically what they mean is lower categories of will. Do I have the ability to make various types of decisions? Um, and so what I guess I would just do and um, kind of like we were talking about just before was put them into different categories. Um, and so when it comes to one level of free will, can I pick a, a green shirt as opposed to a blue shirt? You know, do I have the freedom to do that or are all my motions, all my movements, every single thing that I do, is it Mexican food or is it pizza tonight? Like, <laughs> is, is that, do I have the ability to decide that? My thought is, Absolutely yes, and I you know I, I know God knows the end from the beginning, and someone can come back with a philosophical argument like if God knows you were going to choose Mexican food. Do you right. is it really free in your decision? I think that kind of just gets down to splitting hairs in a sense that I, I, first of all, I don't even know how much how of great importance it is, um, right. but I think from a very practical level, the Bible gives various um, onus to individuals in their decision making. Um, and they decided um, to go in one place. They, they, uh, you know, you read through the book of Acts, and then it also says that the Holy Spirit led them and told them to go in a certain direction. But there's also usages of the word, and the Bible doesn't avoid it. They decided to go from one place to the next. Um, choose whoever you will. Um, you know, in the end of I think it's the book of Numbers when it's you know marrying wives, and he says like you know just don't marry anybody outside of your tribe. But other than that, choose who, marry whoever you want. And so there is biblical language of just saying like just just make the decision. <laughs> you know, and maybe right. God knows the God knows what decision you're going to make, but you just you just make it. You're, you, right. You can do that. We don't worry about God's perspective of that. Yeah. Like, that's all Him. Yeah. yeah. Secret things belonging to the Lord. <laughs> yes. Yep. Yeah. And this is something that I think Christians can live with an almighty, all-knowing God also saying, I'm making decisions yeah. and being fine with that. Another category is, um, and I'm glad that you brought this up, but was moral decisions. Um, are we free in our will to always just make the right decisions constantly? Because I have a desire to always please the Lord and never sin. Am I able to do that? Absolutely not. I'm not free in that regard. I'm bound in this body of flesh that Paul says is a body of sin and death. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Um, thanks be to Jesus Christ. And so just prior to that, he even says, though, like the, the, the evil that I don't want to do, I do. And the, the good that I want to do, I don't do. Um, we have these like daily wrestlings. The, yeah. the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Um, the flesh wages war against the spirit, Galatians chapter five. And, um, you know, and we need to pray daily. Even Jesus teaches us to pray in the Lord's prayer. Um, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That's not a one-time thing, but we pray this daily, constantly. Yes. And we know if, if we, if I was able to stop sinning, then I would definitely not need to pray that part of the Lord's prayer. But there's just like this understanding that I'm bound in this sinful flesh, that I'm going to sin. It's not an excuse for me to continue living in sin and just throw up my hands, but I keep fighting the fight. But I understand and recognize I'm bound in this flesh to not, I'm not able to do, to live the sinless life that I want to live. And that points me right to Jesus Christ who lived the sinless life for me. And there's the gospel and, you know, obviously we can go into all that, but to keep it tight to this question. Yeah. Like I think we have the will to make decisions and I'm, um, I'm responsible for all of my decisions, but nonetheless, I'm still in some senses bound and uh, to this sinful body. Um, and then I guess just another third category, um, 
and this is maybe the most most controversial of it is can Christians freely choose God or are we bound in some senses where we can't choose God as far as salvation is concerned. as far as like salvation, is salvation. Concerned. yes yeah. yep and so like the two different examples and it, it's classic but you know um, is are a bunch of people treading water and God goes out on a boat and he is um, throwing out life rafts <clears throat> excuse me and people have the ability to either accept the life raft or not or is it maybe everybody's dead on the bottom of the ocean and God is just going down and nobody has the ability to even lift up their hand to him in our sinful nature, fallen state. Um, some would say that we're so depraved and so sinful that not only are we going to choose sin every day, but we're also incapable and unwilling, both of those at the same time, to even choose God. And it has to be God's initial act. Um and I think there's, there's, you know, this is the ancient debate. This is how it happens. You know, people <laughs> debate this all the time. All but I think time, the essential yeah. elements of it are we acknowledge, just like Jesus says in John 15, like Jesus says to them, um, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. And I think, but I think the disciples, their reaction might have been, no, I, I did. Like, what? of course I did. I, I chose, you, you said come and I came. And so there is something to that where it's mysterious, where it's like, I, I, I did choose you, God, but ultimately you choosing me first, and really how all the particulars of that flesh out. Um, I'm okay with saying I think there's a little bit of mystery there, and I'm all right sure. with that. Um, I do have to, I think the essential elements are God is the one who calls, and we respond, and how all of that particularly works out in regard to that, I'm okay. I have some formed opinions that I think are right. I, you know, but I also am comfortable recognizing that some people come to different conclusions, but I think as long as you have the essential elements there, yep. how you really frame those together, I'm okay with, as long as you're not doing a disservice to really either one of those. But when it comes to this question, again, I probably, I won't put my opinions on that, but I'll just say that I think there's there's space there for some disagreement, which is cool. Yeah. Um, as long as you have that, the foundational elements, yeah. like it's, yeah. I'm, I'm cool with. Yes, that's good. So, just a short yeah, answer, okay. and again, that uh, with all these, these could be a whole episode, but that's just a kind of a nutshell answer. But next question for you, bro. Um, and this is cool because I like this. Somebody was listening intently to our episodes, and then this question seemed to pop out of that episode. So, the question is, where did Jesus take the souls that he freed from Hades? And so, in that episode, we had kind of talked about First Peter. Jesus descends into Hades um, and proclaims victory ransacks uh, Hades and takes all of the his righteous people out. Um, but if the new heavens and the new earth, as we also said, are not yet the full, real, eternal fulfillment of the new heavens and the new earth, then where did he take those souls who were in Hades if he brought them? Mm. Where is, they're not in heaven, I guess the questioner would say, because this new, real, eternal new heavens, new earth is not even here yet, so where are they? Yeah, I love that question. <laughs> Very good question. So um, let's back up. So when people died uh, in the old covenant, so before Jesus came, like from Adam all the way to Jesus, when people died, um, whether believer, whether um, righteous or unrighteous, believer or unbeliever, um, they would go to this place called Hades or the grave or uh, Sheol is the Old Testament word for it. Hades is the New Testament equivalent as far as a word is concerned. It just means the place of the dead. 
And in the place of the dead, it seems to be um, based on a parable that Jesus gives that uh, there's a divide in Sheol, in the place of the dead, where there's the unrighteous on one side, the righteous on the other. The righteous, it's paradise over here, mm-hmm. and for the unrighteous, it's torment. Though not the final heaven and hell. That's important. It's not the final heaven and hell. This is like a holding place, um, not like purgatory. That's, that's yeah, a completely yeah, yeah. different thing. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, but like that. So um, then when Jesus comes, uh, remember he died on the cross. He said to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise being Abraham's bosom, the uh, the good part of Hades or Sheol. Jesus comes down, proclaim, proclaims his victory to all of his enemies, um, and also proclaims um, and also takes with him all of the righteous. Mm-hmm. And where does he go? That's the question. So he he goes to he brings them to God, the Father, mm-hmm. brings them to the presence of the Father. Mm-hmm. So so the question is okay, but. Is that heaven? Because mm-hmm. I thought heaven is coming later. Yep. New heavens and new earth, isn't that coming later? Well, this is important. So heaven is just kind of a word that we use just vaguely defining wherever God is, mm-hmm. like the abode of God, right? Um, I don't think, uh, and I don't want to sound nerdy here, but I don't think that heaven is maybe in the, we wouldn't call it the same dimension <laughs> that we're in. Uh <laughs> Uh, not to say there's a multiverse or whatever, that's a totally different thing, but, (laughs) but, um, like, I don't think God is physically somewhere in this universe and we could take a rocket ship and get there. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's like that. I do think there's another dimensional element to this that we just, it's just not possible for us to know right now. Um, so with that being said, Jesus took those people to the presence of the father and Paul in Philippians 1 says, I long to depart and be with Christ, to be with God. Mm-hmm. And that's like a very immediate sense. So like if he dies, he's going to be with God immediately. Mm-hmm. So we know that when, when a believer dies, like we're going to be with God when we die immediately, mm-hmm. which is very comforting. But that's not heaven in the final sense. When we talk about heaven, a lot of times we think of this weird ethereal place in the sky um, and although maybe in one sense it's like that right now, I don't really know. We don't have really much description at all of what it's like for believers right now other than that they're with God. We do know the final sense where there is a resurrection, a physical resurrection, so we will have our bodies back in a physical way. So right now those that are dead don't have physical bodies in the same way that we do. Yeah. Yep. But um, maybe in some weird spiritual sense, I have no idea. But again, I'm not even going to comment on that. <laughs> but in a... Uh, um, in the future, at the resurrection at Christ's return, all those in Christ will be raised from the dead, given perfect bodies, and be on a new earth. And that's called the new heavens and new earth. And it's not two separate places. Heavens and earth, heaven and earth are together, like yeah. they were in the garden. Yeah, God's yeah. Pre- God's dwelling is with humanity, so the whole earth will be a temple. Basically, mm-hmm. it'll be the place where God and man meet. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That was, uh... That's good, though. Yeah. <laughs> yep. They're, but they they they're with God. They went with God. God. Jesus took them to God. And yep. Um, yeah. Yep. That's great. That's cool. awesome. All right. Let me ask you this next one. Is there a judgment for believers in Scripture? How is this different from the judgment of unbelievers? Mm-hmm. 
I think that's um, awesome question. And when we when we tackle this, uh, I just want to. I guess I'll start with Matthew twenty five, just an overview of it. But at the end of Matthew twenty five, um, or kind of midway through verses thirty one to about forty six, Jesus talks about the sheep and the goats, and um, he will separate them based on their works. Um, these these uh, the sheep who. Um, served Jesus, you know, to Jesus, like when I was hungry, you, you gave me food naked, you gave me clothing, all of these things. Um, they'll say, when did we do this? He says, what you did to the least of these, my brethren, you did to me. And then he'll say to the goats, what you did not do to the least of these, you did not do to me. And so then they're separated sheep from the goats, final judgment, one to everlasting life, another to eternal punishment. And so this is, I, what I what I'm saying is with this is this is the the overarching judgment upon the world that Jesus Christ will come and judge the living and the dead, and that this is a type of judgment that is salvific. This is a salvific judgment. Um, mm-hmm. We see Jesus Christ doing what he does um, as the sovereign King of the universe, and is able to do, and is only able to do is judge mankind in a salvific way. And again, this is what comes to light is their works. Um, we also see this in Romans chapter 2. Um, let me just get there. Romans chapter 2. <clears throat> um, he says, Or do you not think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance, um, but because of your stubbornness and unrebe- unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. And so there are some uh, who, who might take this the wrong way and say, all right, well, salvation is of our works then. Um, what we would argue is now just Jesus Christ's perfect righteousness. He is the one who has atoned for our sin, lived the sinless life on our account. And so now believers are saved not on account of our works, but because of the works that Jesus Christ has done. And so our entrance into heaven is not on account of our particular deeds, which I'm going to explain hopefully more in a second. But the world, they're judged um, based on their deeds. They deserve judgment because their deeds were evil. And so they have no access or entrance into the kingdom of God. And so their judgment is one of a final nature. Um, And now there is, though, a particular judgment. This is the first one was more of a general. It's salvific. It's either you're for all humans everywhere. Yeah, all humans everywhere. Um, you're either in the kingdom or you're out. Um, and so now those who are in the kingdom, though, um, we see a particular judgment for us. And this is also according to works. Um, but this one is more our works. And all of this, I would I would argue, is done in the spirit. He gets all of the, the glory. Sure, we cast our crowns. All of that. And so our first judgment, we're saved by works, but not our works, but the works of Jesus Christ, his perfect righteousness placed on us, atoning for our sins, um, perfect substitution, his life for ours, um, his righteousness placed on us sinful human beings. So we're saved not by our works, but by the works of Jesus. But now this particular judgment, um, I think, is really laid out in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 where there is a judgment that goes beyond salvific. And now it's more, what did you do for your uh, in Christ? How was your life manifesting and bringing glory to God? 
And so, and just just kind of skim through this, but First Corinthians chapter three, I'd say the whole chapter, and even into chapter four. But I'm just going to touch on a couple of parts real quick, um, starting in verse eight. So it says, "Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward." Emphasis on the word reward here, according to his own labor. So again, it's according to our work. Um, and just again, we will cast our crowns. All of it is of God, and all of these things. But um, he says, "For we are God's fellow workers." co-laborers we are um, with God in his field, God's building. And so now Paul is just, I love how Paul thinks he often, like I feel like a thought crosses his mind and he just runs with it so well. Um, God's building. And now he's going to use an analogy of God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, Paul says, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So our firm foundation is Jesus Christ. Uh, Ephesians 2.20, the apostolic teaching, um, uh, re-strengthens this as it's carried on and brought uh, through history in the church. But um, ultimately, Jesus Christ is the the foundation that nobody else can, we can't lay anything else as the foundation. Mm. Now, picking up in verse 12, now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work, which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as though through fire. And so the way I see this is this is that particular judgment that is for believers and believers only. Unbelievers are not going to be in this judgment because the final, every, every everybody in this judgment is saved, each and every one of them. Even if their work gets burned up, if they've built with wood, hay, and straw, all of their work is burned up. But again, as Paul says, they will be saved. And so there is a salvific component that has already been accomplished on their behalf. They can't lose it. It's not being burnt up or weighed here, but at the end of the day, their works are being judged. Others, with the same salvation, merits only due to Jesus Christ, are building with gold, silver, and precious stones. Hmm. That will endure through the fire, and they will remain, and there will be a reward for them that is accompanying their already existing salvation. And so some people will be saved without any um really accompanying rewards other than their salvation, which is, praise the Lord, more than we could ever deserve or even possibly imagine and fathom how amazing it's going to be just to be saved. But then on top of that, God in his abundance is giving rewards to those who labor and build upon the foundation with precious stones, silver, gold. These things will last. Um, And so there's more to be said on that, but that's just the quick kind of overview that there is a a judgment for believers, but then also... Uh, that's the that's the more particular type. Yep. Cool. That's yeah. good. Yeah. Praise the Lord. Praise God. <clears throat> so, um, let me ask you this one. Um, and maybe after this one, we can stop. But I just want to, I guess, put this out here for um our listeners and one in particular who asked this. But I think this is going to benefit a lot of people because this is a very, very, very common question that people give. Is God a tyrant in the Old Testament? Why does he seem in the Old Testament as kind of this ogre, very bloodthirsty, very, um, you know, 
just just violent as opposed to the New Testament God that we see is just kind of like soft and, and and a lot more kind, easily more easily presentable to a world. What's up with that? Mm. Um, how do we handle? I don't think this questioner is really. I mean, maybe in some senses we all have asked this question ourselves, but I think this listener is really when they ask this question is how do we handle it when atheists or skeptics sure. throw this question at us? What's what's a way that we can combat this? Yeah. So no, he's not a tyrant. <laughs> right. Case closed. No, just kidding. Yep. Yep. Um, okay. So uh, this is what I would say. I'd want to kind of even the playing field a little bit. So. Um, so first of all, as Christians, we believe there's one God who has eternally existed in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, and He is unchangeable. He is unchangeable, and that is uh, that is a central doctrine to the Christian faith. So when we think about Old Testament, New Testament, I don't think that's actually um, maybe the clearest way to look at it. I think... God progressively works throughout history, throughout making promises to his people over time. But he's the same God, though the um, promises build on each other and they're different, and there's he does different things at different times based on those promises, etc. This is what I would say. Um, just to maybe, I'll just um, tip my hat towards the whole Old Testament, New Testament thing, mm. since that's very common. Uh, and the Old Testament, there are m- just many, many cases of God being loving and gracious. Just look at the Psalms, for example. Yeah. Just read the Psalms. Look, um, if you have if you have a translation other than uh, KJV, NKJV, or NASB, just type in love, mm-hmm. and you'll see it all over the place in the Psalms. The reason I said those things about the other translations is typically they'll translate that as mercy, but... Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. I think more accurately translated as either faithful love, steadfast love, whatever. Um, nonetheless, um, God's God's love is everywhere in the Old Testament. His mercy everywhere, um, and at the same time, you see this this intense wrath and hatred for sin and sinners. In the New Testament, you see um, God's mercy and grace in a culmination, like kind of come to a climax in Jesus Christ, God becoming man. Um, but at the same time, there is plenty of instances where uh, where God and Jesus, the God-man, are full of wrath and anger towards sin mm-hmm. and right. kill people because of it. Like, look at uh, Acts chapter 5, where uh, Ananias and Sapphira, they lie about the, how much they gave to God, to to the church, and right. um, yeah. Peter says you lied against the Holy Spirit, and then he's struck down, and then the wife comes in after she's struck down. Um, so God killed people for yeah. lying in the New, in the Testament. New Testament. This is after Pentecost. Yeah. Okay, so uh-huh. <laughs> there's that, and then I think probably the most clear one is Revelation 19, yeah. where you see Jesus. Yeah, depicted yeah jesus himself depicted as this king coming and just obliterating his enemies and not just obliterating them but it goes into description of like having like six feet pools of blood Mm -hmm. of his enemies Mm -hmm. whether that's figurative figurative or not it's not the point the point is he's depicted as this conquering king who slaughters his enemies that's right doesn't just 
put him in a cage somewhere. He slaughters his enemies. Yeah. So we're like, okay, well, is, that sounds like God's like some mean tyrant in the sky. And here's the thing. We are so arrogant. Mm-hmm. We are so arrogant to think that God has to treat us filthy, rebellious sinners in gentle, kind ways all the time. Like, we deserve death. We deserve that. We deserve torture forever based on our rebellion against an eternal God. Like, when we think God's too harsh, we have a low view of God. God is so merciful to even let us live. Mm -hmm. So when we look at particular cases in the Old Testament where God orders the slaughtering of an entire people group in a city or whatever in a region, we got to understand, first of all, God is always just. He's always right no matter what he does. He gets to define. He, he is the definition of what is right. That's how we know what's right and what's wrong. It's based on his character. It proceeds from him. So when, um, so it's impossible for God not to be just because he's the definition of justice. But mm-hmm. to, to go with that a little further, um, every person God ever commanded to be killed deserved to die. Yeah. Unless you're, we're talking about Jesus, but that's God himself. And of course, mm-hmm. that's a whole other thing. But mm-hmm. every, every human that God has ever um, killed or told his people to kill deserved to die based on his judgment, and that was right. That doesn't mean now we get to just arbitrarily kill whoever we want to, to kill them when we think it's right. It's not like that. That was a specific time for the nation of Israel when he was in a covenant with them in that particular way. Um, and that's the other thing we got to think about. We're looking at a country um, that God established to be a type for this future country, this future nation from every tribe, tongue, and nation, where he's at the, the church, in other words. Um, yep. But uh, nonetheless, God is just as full of wrath in the old as in the new. Mm-hmm. And we kind of see his wrath come to a climax in the New Testament, yeah. honestly, because that's where heaven and hell is, by the way. <laughs> it's after Jesus. Um, and we see his grace come to a climax in the New Testament. So really, we're just getting this progressive picture of um, of uh, of God working throughout history, not progressive in the liberal sense, but progressive in the sense that we're we're seeing more and more of who He is, and ultimately the climax is in the New Testament where we see all of His grace and all of His wrath, and it's mm-hmm. not they're not opposed to each other. That's just who God is, mm-hmm. and if we don't like that, well, okay, that's fine, but we're wrong mm-hmm. if we don't like God because of that, and we just disagree with Him and choose not to believe in Him. Mm-hmm. You don't get to choose whether or not something's true just because you don't like it. Yep. Amen. That's true, whether you like it or not. And the best thing to do is humble yourself and just submit to the fact that God is better than you and higher than you, and Mm -hmm. you're just a a mere human, yeah, mere mortal. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That's what I would say. That's good. Yeah. Yep. And I think we need to... I I think it's great to highlight that God is very, very loving, compassionate, and kind, and merciful in the old, and He is as equally and like you even said maybe even more dem- demonstrative of his wrath in the new testament than in yeah. the old and if we wanted to go to a place where the wrath of god is most displayed yeah we might say new testament yeah it's new testament for sure yeah i mean the cross yeah the wrath of god on the cross mm-hmm. like the father's wrath poured out on the son like yeah you don't get 
like you can't get yep. more wrath than that Wrathful you know like uh-huh yeah yep incredible yes cool yeah well well that's good bro this is awesome um and that just to you listeners we just want to thank you guys so much we appreciate you and we're really really grateful for for you and we hope that we can be a blessing uh in this podcast and that it has been that to you all and um we've been so blessed doing this and so i don't know if you're thinking of us praying for us um maybe we'll see what happens for if if and when the lord calls us to do a season two yeah Um, but yeah keep your questions coming in keep thoughts coming to us we really 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 love hearing from you guys and talking to you so praise god yeah cool well that's all for today's episode consider subscribing for more simply christian content and until next time